Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Colin Meyer to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Colin is the Peter Moores Professor of Management Studies at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford, where he was dean between 2006 and 2011. Colin's research explores the regulation of financial markets and institutions, international comparisons of financial systems and corporate governments, and their effects on the financing and control of corporations. He also has a long-standing research interest in the role of the corporation in contemporary society. Thank you very much, Colin, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. So maybe just to begin, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and what you're working on at the moment, uh, your current research focus. I'm a professor here at the uh, Said Business School in Oxford University. I'm an economist by background and I specialize in the area of finance and corporate finance in particular. I was the uh, first professor in the business school and helped to set it up some uh, 20 uh, years ago. Um, And uh, I uh, was the dean of the business school between 2006 and 2011. I now focus around the area of responsible business, and in particular, what can be done to promote purposeful businesses that contribute to the well-being and prosperity of the world and societies around the world. Excellent. Crucial questions. Crucial questions. Uh, A question I usually like to ask just at the beginning to set the scene a little bit, I suppose. We're facing so many different kinds of problems, environmental problems, crises and so forth. Is there anything particular on your mind? What what, what worries you in particular? Well, the focus of attention at the moment is obviously on climate issues, and that's the area which is getting the most interest from business, from investors, and from policymakers. It's an absolutely critical issue, and our survival as a planet depends on it. But I'm also very interested in the way in which technology over the future will influence uh, the nature of our societies and the types of businesses that operate in that society. And I believe that we have to uh, take considerable care in terms of the way in which we adopt those new technologies. And I think that business is a very important role to play in that process. Right, right. Now, what role do you think corporations can play, particularly large corporations, in helping to deal with the environmental problems we're facing right now? Well, let's be absolutely clear that uh, business is one of the most important institutions in our lives. It clothes, feeds and houses us. It employs us and invests our savings. It's been the source of economic prosperity uh, and the growth of nations around the world. And it's taken many people out of poverty uh, over many years. Uh, So it has played an extremely important role in our lives 
and it's got a very important role to play going forward, a critical role, especially in relation to the environment. Now, one of the arguments that I've put forward is that to address the issues and the challenges that we currently face, and we do face very serious challenges in relation to the environment, climate change, uh, inequality, and uh, an erosion of trust uh, in business around the world. I believe that uh, business should be addressing those challenges, that it is potentially one of the most important influences on the way in which those challenges are going to pan out in the future. Uh, and I've argued that we should regard business as being a critical mechanism for bringing about effective change that enhances our well-being as societies and enhances the environment and addresses many of the issues that we face in relation to our natural assets. Absolutely. And I, we're going to go hopefully deeper into some of the, the uh, uh, structural uh, issues around the way corporations operate and the way uh, they, they behave. I'm just wondering, um, is, this may be an overly simplistic um, uh, way, of, way of looking at things, but I'm just interested to get your perspective. It's been said that one of the reasons why the Montreal Accord was so successful was uh, in dealing with the ozone uh, problem was you could get effectively all the parties involved in, in one room and, and, you know, and, and negotiate and work something out. And I'm just wondering what you think of the idea that uh, according to some analysis and statistics, it's, it's a, a mere handful of, well, a hundred companies are responsible for almost three quarters of global emissions do you think that there's a similar logic or an analogy that we could think about in terms of, you know, the, the climate change? No, I don't think I don't think that's the right way of looking at it. You just have to get together a handful of companies uh, and get them to change their ways, and the problem will be solved. I think that uh, there is a lot that those companies can do uh, to address the deterioration in the environment and global warming, but I think that it involves a much larger segment of the corporate sector than just those large emitters of uh, CO2. And I think that uh, one should recognize that to address the problems that we face, we, re we really have to rally the corporate sector as a whole to determining in innovative ways methods for addressing climate problems, for finding alternatives to energy sources that we currently uh, use and shifting in particular towards the creation of renewable sources of energy going forward. Now that is a very substantial change. Obviously, the, the, the main oil producers or what are now regarding themselves as being energy companies have a key role to play in that, but so too do many other corporations and we really need to ensure that they are focused on delivering the right solutions to that problem in as short an order as possible yes yes very interesting I mean, how do you rate the success of the csr movement uh, to date and how much can we really expect from corporations on this front given the 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 idea the logic of maximizing profits uh, in its, I guess, legal form and also in its 
the way it's been interpreted, because I understand in the UK there's a broader uh, remit, corporations have a broader remit, yet the profit maximization agenda is a huge driver of behavior. Well, let's be clear that we are not talking about CSR. CSR has not been a success for the most part, insofar as CSR is a matter of doing good things on the side of companies that continue to operate in their traditional ways. We are talking about the core activities of companies and repurposing companies around the core functions that they perform, not simply doing good things on the side. Now, at the heart of that is the question about what the purpose of business is. Uh, And as you said, the traditional way of looking at that is in relation to what is termed the Friedman Doctrine after Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who back in 1962 and then again in 1970, said that there is one and only one social purpose of business to increase profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game. Now, what is required is a recognition that that is not a sufficient basis on which to look at the purpose of companies. And as you said, the uh, the way in which uh, many corporate laws, company laws around the world in particular, in the UK, formulate the notion of business is in terms of what is sometimes termed the more enlightened approach to business. So, for example, the UK Companies Act 2006 says that the director of a company must act in the way that he considers in good faith most likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members as a whole, that is to say its shareholders, and in so doing, have regard to, amongst other matters, the likely consequences of any decision on the long term and the impact that it has on a number of different stakeholders. And then it lists uh, a number of those stakeholders, the customers, the employees, the societies, the uh, suppliers, environment, etc. So the law recognizes that companies need to take appropriate account of the interests of of their stakeholders. But the way in which company law, as I've just described it in the UK, formulates that is in terms of the delivery of benefits to shareholders. So the directors of a company have a duty to take account of those other parties, but only insofar as that promotes the success of the company for the benefit of its shareholders. Now, if we're really going to tackle those critical problems that I'm saying we're facing uh, over the next few years, we have to go further than that. We have to recognize that the role of a company is not simply to promote the success for the benefit of shareholders, albeit having regard to the interests of other parties. We have to recognize that there is a more fundamental purpose of companies. And the way in which I describe that more fundamental purpose is as saying that the role of companies is to solve problems, to solve problems that we as societies and the natural world face, and to do so in a profitable fashion. So the way in which I define the purpose of business 
is to say that the purpose of business is to produce profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet and not to profit from producing problems for people or planet. Now, that then should be the driving force of companies. It should be reflected in the fiduciary responsibilities of directors of companies in company law, and it should be reflected in the way in which companies organize their activities and govern the way in which they operate. Right. I've covered a lot of ground there and a lot, a lot very deep. Um, I, I just wonder, uh, before I, um, move, moving in, into detail on that a little bit, um, it, it, it seems in the, in the United States there are an increasing number of well, experts and I mean, lawyers who argue there really isn't any solid foundation in corporate law, corporate economics for this maximizing shareholders' return. Um, and that it's, yes, it's a hugely powerful and dominant uh, driver of, of, of activity. And um, I, I spoke to uh, Jay Kong Gilbert from the, from the B Corps movement. He was saying, well, all that's fine, but at the end of the day, it's the decisions made in the, the, the Supreme Court in Delaware that effectively decides really what the limits you know, are here. Well, I think, I think it's a little bit more uh, complex than that. It's true that company law emphasizes the success of the company, uh, and as I described it in relation to the UK, uh, it thinks about that success in regard to promoting the interests of its members, its shareholders. And Delaware law talks about uh, the success of the company uh, as well as its shareholders. Uh, So that it is correct to argue that company law is permissive in allowing companies to organize their activities in such a way as to promote the success of the firm. But the reason why I think that that is missing the point is that it does not provide protection to companies and boards of companies that determine that they wish to pursue purposes for their businesses that may, at least in the immediate future have implications that are not necessarily going to maximize the returns to their shareholders. And the the reason why I think that that is important is that what is of greater impact and influence on the boardrooms of companies is not so much running to the courts, to Delaware uh, or in London, uh, but in terms of the way in which the financial markets, the capital markets, and the stock markets in particular operate. Uh, And the fact that if companies do not pursue benefits for their shareholders, effectively uh, seeking to maximize their shareholder value, they are under risk from a potential bidder, in a hostile bid, for example, or a hedge fund activist, coming along and buying a block of shares in companies, taking seats on the board, and changing the policy of the company. So that the reason why the law is important is that by embedding purpose at the heart of it and making it a fiduciary responsibility of directors to uphold that purpose, then that provides directors with a degree 
of protection against pursuing those policies that allows them to commit to the delivery of those corporate purposes in a way in which at present it is simply impossible for them to do that because the law still focuses on the notion that it's up to the shareholders at the end of the day to determine what they believe is in their best interest as reflected, for example, in the intervention by a hostile bidder or a hedge fund activist. Yes, it's very interesting, the whole area of investment, another huge area. Um, and, and I guess uh, you know, the US is one, one market, the UK are different markets of different structures, different concentration of shareholders, institutional investors and so forth. But I'm just wondering um, if we, we, we'll be talking about an agenda of change, to what degree there seems to be quite uh, some momentum and this talk and uh, the, the you know, principles of responsible investment and quite a, a number of organizations and dynamics looking at ESG and, and other factors like that. What's your assessment of, I guess, um, one is the, the, uh, the, the, the power of institutional investors and, and also their, what, what needs to change uh, to really make significant change here? Well, let's be clear that there has been dramatic change really over a matter of a few months over the last year uh, in the attitude of some of the most prominent figures in this debate. Uh, in 2019, at the beginning, we had the statement by Larry Fink of BlackRock about every business needing a purpose. We had in August of 2019, the Business Roundtable coming out with its uh, restatement of corporate purpose. We had the Financial Times launching its new agenda on capitalism, time for a reset. Uh, we had the British Academy coming out with its principles for uh, purposeful business. And uh, we had uh, the World Economic Forum talking about the need for a universal declaration on uh, corporate purpose. So we have an immense amount of momentum behind the notion that things need to change and that going forward, we need to think in terms of purposes of business that go beyond the traditional Milton Friedman view of shareholder interests and shareholder primacy. And the area in which it is critical that, that there is support for this is not just from the boardrooms of companies, but also from institutional investors. Now, there has been a significant degree of progress uh, in that regard um, and, and, and in relation to many uh, aspects of this. So, for example, over the last few years, in regard to corporate law, we've seen the emergence of the Public Benefit Corporation, uh, which is a form of corporate uh, uh, legal structure which requires the directors of a company to state a public purpose alongside their normal commercial activities and demonstrate that they are delivering on that corporate purpose. In Britain, we've had the Financial Reporting Council coming out 
with a new corporate governance code in 2018, which says that the role of corporate governance is not just in terms of solving the agency problem, as it's termed, of aligning management interests with those of their shareholders, but aligning management interests with those of their purposes, their corporate purposes. And we had both the Financial Reporting Council and the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK coming out with a stewardship code, which argues that institutions, financial institutions, should have a purpose uh, that reflects not just their role in promoting the interests of their investors, their beneficiaries, but also helps to steward companies in terms of meeting their corporate purposes. So there is an increasing emphasis throughout the system in terms of repurposing companies around the notion of purposes that go beyond profits and aligning institutional investors as well as boards of directors with the achievement of that. Uh, do you think, I mean, what, what, how do you, I mean, that's very impressive, as you say, it's, it's for, on, on many dimensions. How do you actually assess the impact of all of that? And I'm just wondering that in the context of, you know, the, the, the power of financial markets, the, 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 the increasingly short-term nature, the increasingly computer-based trading, the algorithms, and so forth. You know, that it seems a, a very uh, powerful and, and tightly linked dynamic there. And I'm just wondering, all of these initiatives that you talk about and, and, and the momentum, which is tremendous, how does that actually manifest? And, 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 and is there enough you know, uh, momentum to actually change? So the way in which this needs to be evaluated is in terms of outcomes. Whether or not, coming back to my notion of what the purpose of business is, as to whether business is addressing the problems that confront us as individuals, as societies, as nations around the world and the natural world and our environment. And so what one needs to observe is not just fine words or changes in policy, but actions being taken by companies to demonstrate that they really are committed to the delivery of those solutions. And in that regard, coming back to what I was describing as the uh, British Academy program on the future of the corporation, where we came out uh, with these principles for promoting purposeful business, eight sets of principles around law and regulation and issues like that, we're now moving on to say, right, okay, let's take some of the big problems that we in the world face in regard to, for example, climate change or the future of work or inequality or the use of data or artificial intelligence and the impact that that's going to have uh, on our lives through business. Take those big issues and challenges that we face and let's demonstrate how reformulated business can help to solve those problems and how this notion of purposeful business really 
is a mechanism by which we can address the big challenges that we face going forward. That is the type of outcome that I'll be looking for over the next few years in terms of real evidence that there's been change. Are you optimistic? Do you see some good examples? I mean, it's quite a, it's very interesting. I mean, some of these problems uh, that we face, many of the problems, the environmental problems, um, well, you can frame them in various ways, but from, from a, I guess from a, a, a business or a corporate perspective is, is due to this question of externalities and a question of, you know, that, 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 that the value of nature is not valued. Uh, the, or the, that nature is not valued in the equations, the decisions and so forth that organizations and corporations make. Does that need to change? Well, there are uh, good illustrations of this happening at present, and in particular around the environment and climate change agenda. That has really shot up uh, the agenda of both business and investors around the world and is reflected in the greater emphasis that is being placed, for example, on ESG measures. Now, to give an illustration of that, uh, what we are observing and beginning to happen is that oil companies are no longer viewing themselves as being oil companies, but as energy companies. And if you pose the question, coming back to my description of corporate purpose as being to profitably solve the problems of people and planet and not to profit from producing problems for people at moment. In the case of an oil or an energy company, what that means is that that energy company is there to solve our energy problems. That is, that is the primary function that an energy company uh, has. I mean, it's got other functions and purposes yeah as well. I, i'm just interested colin you, you you mentioned that you know how much of that is just re, rebranding you know i've seen some figures to say that you know the all together the, the top oil and gas companies spent something like one percent uh you know on green energy in 2018 calling yourself an energy company you know what, what I, I don't know i'm just wondering whether the, the fossil fuel companies are really a good example it's it's hard to, uh, it's hard not to be cynical, really. Of course, about, of course. Uh, you know. Of course, it's hard not to be cynical, and that's why I'm saying that the extent to which this is significant uh, as a uh, 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 as against just a form of greenwashing depends on the actual actions that they take, and so it's all very well saying that they are going to help to shift the nature of our energy sources over the next decades, but really <coughs> this has to happen in short order. And so what is required to provide a demonstration that this is more than fine words is a mapping of the process by which companies are going to take us from where we are to where we need to be over the next few years. And one needs to have specific measures of the extent to which they are actually fulfilling that uh, and delivering on the, uh, the improvements that need to take place. So that, that, that's one set of clear, measurable indicators that we need to have as to whether or not the, the necessary changes are coming about. But the reason why I said earlier on this is not just a matter 
of putting a handful of companies into a room and saying, right, okay, what are you, the uh, the major oil producers, doing to uh, to reduce the impact that you're having on the environment? It's also a matter of looking for much more innovative new forms of trying to address the, the, the problems. Uh, and so technology offers the potential for really finding a solution. And we need to have not just the major oil companies that, as you say, may be very difficult ships to turn uh, sufficiently rapidly, but we need to have very nimble new companies that are bringing the new technologies uh, that are going to be required to the fore very rapidly over the next few years. Yeah, and I think your vision, and, and we talk about that, of the kinds of changes that need to take place is, is a very uh, powerful one. I, I just wonder how you see that happening politically. And it's always a tricky question, isn't it? In, in terms of, you know, the, the legislation, in terms of, you know, you can see for, for you know, for, for I mean, for like the B Corps, in, in, uh, B Corporations in America, they, they, they're growing and, you know, it's a, it's a very small number, but it's a couple of large companies, uh, big multinationals, you know, looking at that now, it's still quite a small uh, uh, proportion. Um, th- these, you know, huge companies that are, are there, to, you know, the, 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 the Googles of the world and, and so forth. How, how, how do, you know, and, 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 and the embedded you know, investments that we're all somehow linked into, you know, in our pensions and, and uh, you know, through insurance and one thing and another, um, with, 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 with the, the, you know, the fortune, you know, whatever, 100 or 500, how, how do you get change there? And that's why law is absolutely critical, that so long as we don't have corporate laws that put corporate purpose at the heart of the duties of directors of companies, we will not bring about a sufficient degree and speed of change. The the lessons in America seem to be that the corporations have been very powerful in 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 the terms of the legislation that have supported their agenda you know and the corporation becoming you know the rights of an, an individual or a person and, and 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 so forth and indeed i think you you you've you know mapped out in your research as well how the you know in, in institution the investment industry and the pension industry in the uk have had influence as well um so i i guess there's there's some significant forces in to to counteract Yes, and those changes took place against a background of an intellectual thinking that said it was the role of business and it was the role of institutional investors to promote shareholder interest. That is precisely what emerged as being the intellectual basis from the 1960s onwards. And that is why the impact that they had in terms of shifting Uh, the nature of business was so powerful. We are going through exactly an equivalent change in thinking now, a movement away from a belief in terms of the role of business as being to promote profit to the notion that we need to find a way of using business as a form of solving the very substantial problems that we're we're facing. So, So now is the moment at which it's going to be possible to grasp this Natal and to say that uh, we need to have the entire suite 
of policy changes that I was talking about in relation to the British Academy uh, principles for purposeful business. We need to have that entire suite in place. And what we cover in that is law and regulation, ownership of companies and the governance of companies, the way in which one measures performance uh, and rewards performance, and the, the role of the financial system and investment by companies. All of those eight areas need to be addressed. They're currently all focused on promoting shareholder interests. And what we're beginning to do is to think about, well, how does one ensure that all of those ducks are in line in terms of helping to deliver on purposes that go beyond profits? Yes, absolutely. Do you worry that the, the horse is the stable door, the, whatever, that the, the horse has escaped? And, and it, you know, in terms of the, you know, the, the way corporations have become these huge, I mean, huge, powerful, but also agile and, uh, you know, footloose uh, and capital is footloose, that that structure, that, that in place, that structure makes it very difficult. No, you have to recognize that this notion that capital is mobile, uh, that it can simply seek the highest returns, is not the way in which most companies are governed. It's the way in which many firms in the UK and the US operate, but the Anglo-American markets are quite distinct from the way in which many markets or most markets around the world operate. In most countries, what you observe is that there's an immense amount of institutional investment of exactly that form, which is highly mobile, but it's against the background of companies having dominant shareholders, which have substantial blocks of shares in companies. And those dominant shareholders are the ones that control, potentially control the running of firms. Now, that notion of being able to identify anchor shareholders who have an interest in promoting the long-term success of the company that takes account of the role of the business in uh, fulfilling a broader range of objectives is a key element in ensuring that we do have purposeful businesses. That's why one of the aspects that I talked about in terms of the reforms that are needed is in relation to ownership and creating a notion that owner in, investors do not simply have rights in terms of the way in which companies are run, but responsibilities for ensuring that they do achieve something that goes beyond just rewarding themselves. So uh, it would be incorrect to say that there are not uh, mechanisms for addressing the problem that you're talking about in relation to footloose uh, investors that exist in most parts of the world and we need to learn lessons from those examples i'm mindful of the time colin you talk about in in in, in one of your papers about lessons and you talk about lessons the industrial foundations uh, in denmark and this idea of foundations owning corporations and so forth can you talk a little bit about that and what might be some of the lessons or insights there okay that that there are very important lessons there because in essence what i'm talking about when I'm viewing business as producing solutions to our problems, is that there is a role that business performs that goes beyond saying that they are simply the agents of their shareholders. That's the conventional way in which we've looked at the firm. What I'm talking about is essentially 
companies that are still performing some of that function in relation to their shareholders, but are also essentially acting as trustees, trustees of resources, very substantial resources, that they are there to manage on behalf of not just their shareholders, but as us as employees, as customers, as suppliers, as societies and communities around the world. And that the, 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 the types of ownership that are observed in particular in Denmark and Germany, which are known as industrial foundations by which companies are actually owned or have dominant block holders, some of these anchor shareholders that are foundations or trusts. And what those foundations and trusts do is essentially to perform the trust function that I'm just talking about. Namely, they have inherited these companies from the founders who put them into foundations and trusts to uphold the principles and the values of those founders. And so the primary function of those foundations is to ensure that the companies below them, such as Carlsberg, Bosch, Bertelsmann, Velux, Tata, Ikea, those foundation-owned companies promote purposes that go beyond just thinking about the returns that they are generating and looking to those companies as having purposes that really help to solve problems. That is an illustration of the general principle that I'm talking about, that we need to think about how do we introduce more of a notion of companies being there in trust, not just as agents of their shareholders. Very interesting. You talk about needing to put humanity back into business. What do you mean? That business was very much a notion of uh, an entity that was supposed to perform humane functions. It was established under Roman law as the uh, societas publicanorum to provide public functions, then of collecting taxes, minting coins, uh, and looking after public buildings. And what emerged as being the notion of business after in particular the Enlightenment period uh, and the writings of Adam Smith was this notion that markets could provide a mechanism for ensuring that companies act uh, in a broader interest uh, for the benefit of society, that, that competition in product markets, labor markets, and financial markets would ensure that business reflects a broader societal benefit. That has not been the case. For a variety of reasons, markets on, them are, on their own are not sufficient. And Adam Smith himself recognized that there were critical conditions and criteria that needed to be satisfied to ensure that markets would operate appropriately. So alongside the Wealth of Nations, he wrote his book, Theory of Moral Sentiment, uh, which set out those notions of what it meant to be a human uh, and the sorts of humane elements that were critical to ensure that business and markets were not abusive. Well, we've lost sight of that notion of the importance of morality as well as markets uh, in emphasizing economic efficiency over ethics. We need to rediscover what Adam Smith was teaching us in terms of thinking not just about the wealth of nations, but also those notions of uh, moral sentiments. 
and what it means then to be moral, humane people operating in the context of commercial markets. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, very interesting. And finally, uh, uh, Colin, you, you talk, mentioned intellectual currents, I guess, and, um, you know, the, the, I suppose, low regulatory, free, extreme free markets, shall we say, that we've seen in the last 30 years didn't come out of nowhere. They, there, were, there were think tanks, there were people working on these ideas, and, you know, these ideas were translated into action. And, of course, they turned out to be very profitable for certain groups and so forth. So there's a, a link to the social change, to the benefits for the, the people who, you know, who, who upheld these ideas. I'm just wondering, um, in the current intellectual, in the climate uh, here uh, in the UK, do you feel that there is uh, considerable momentum do you are you optimistic that these changes will that these ideas will be translated into action and and and, and that mechanism might not be there in the same way that the easy you know uh, increased profits for you know that we we've seen the concentration of wealth and so forth that went with a particular set of ideas what will it take for this set of ideas to to actually get promulgated and to actually get turned into action well there are a lot of uh, vested interests in this area that clearly impede the process of change. Uh, but as has been so often the case in the past, what really brings about effective change is a crisis. Uh, and there's an increasing recognition that we're facing a global crisis that's existential in nature. And that is focusing people's minds very much around what needs to be done to solve that problem. Now, the question is, can we bring about change sufficiently rapidly uh, before uh, the crisis becomes irreversible? And that is the dilemma that we currently face. There is no question that uh, intellectual thinking uh, is shifting appreciably in a direction of looking for alternatives. And there are alternative ideas that are emerging. But what really needs to happen is that those ideas are translated into policies, public policies, into practices, into corporate practices and institutional practices, and into the types of things that go on here in the business school in Oxford, namely to educate the next generation of leaders of businesses and government institutions about the changes that need to take place. So that, that is really the agenda that I see going forward. And I am optimistic that we're going to find a way of seeing our way through this uh, set of issues in a form that will deliver real benefits for societies and the environment around the world. Well, that's a great vision. I did say it was the last question. I just had one other one, and I'm wondering about the role of campaigning and people in the street. Your large corporations like Nike have been, you know, there have been campaigns against sweatshops, there have been campaigns against, you know, on animal rights and so forth. And uh, the divestment movement has 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 uh, grown tremendously in power. Um, do do you think that uh, that what role is there for for this kind of action? 
tremendous role for each and every one of us. And we've seen that happening already. We've seen it happening in relation to the climate agenda and uh, the role that, for example, Extinction Rebellion has played in terms of bringing that up in uh, people's consciousness about the importance of the issue. One of the great merits of social media, and there may be lots of disadvantages as well as merits associated with it, but one of the merits that it has is it does pro potentially provide a way of rallying public opinion around critical issues in a very f effective and quick way. And not only in terms of rallying opinion, but also allowing us to understand what is going on. Uh, so technology will, going forward, provide us with a mechanism by which we'll be able to identify the provenance uh, of products in a much more uh, uh, effective uh, and accurate way in terms of the, the way in which things are produced and the environmental consequences associated with those production processes. So we will be better informed. We will be more knowledgeable of what's going on uh, within business, within the things that we consume and produce. And we will be in a better position to mobilize public opinion going forward in terms of influencing the agenda. And it's really up to each and every one of us to play our role in ensuring that that happens. That's a great vision, Colin. And uh, thank you so much for your time today and all of the important work you're doing and understanding and explaining and helping us <laughs> move forward and create the kind of organizations we need to deal with the problems we're facing today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>